hear that? You know this is the sound of an uncertain future. Welcome to the Risk Topic Podcast. I am your host, Martin Rook. This is the show that stands at the crossroads between science, health, technology and society. How are we doing, ladies and gentlemen? You good? I'm good. Coming at you right now with, with a full cup of coffees full of energy um, and slightly late. I do apologise about that. I was sitting there at meetings yesterday up at uni. It was uh, continuation seminars, I guess you could say, where second year PhD students present their current projects or the projects in their current form uh, to basically the faculty. I happened to, to slip in there with my crutches, didn't do much in the way of slipping. It was more tripping and stumbling. Um, but I was sitting there watching them and I went, wait, I'm forgetting to do something today. I was like, oh, God damn it, the podcast. Um, and then I had meetings with uh, the professor and the doctor. My project is ticking along fine, although I come to realise that ethics forms are not exactly my strong suit. Uh, this, of course, was picked up by the doctor, who is apparently a bioethicist, of all things. Didn't know such a thing existed. So I got reasonably chewed out for that, which was deserved because it was it was terrible. I mean, one of the questions are on the lines of how will you ensure that your participants will not suffer any form of distress and how will you address this? I'm sitting there going, I'm, I'm going to be interviewing people over Skype. There's not much I can do. You know, I doubt that the ethics committee would have enjoyed sing them a soothing song uh, in my answer for that one. So I'm going to have to redo them. But yesterday, as I sat there through the continuation seminars, there was one project that was being pitched that uh, tickled my interest. I guess you could say it was to do with privacy online. And I know at this point, a lot of you listening just sort of went, oh, OK, and just switched off. Um, and that was sort of the point of the presentation. People don't enjoy talking about their privacy online. And then, of course, I happened to stumble across a, a nice little article or several articles, I should say. Uh, it was re reported by Russia Today, The Guardian, The Australian, uh, probably a few other places around the Internet because, you know, there are on an almost infinite number of news sites out there they present the headline that facebook has overstepped uh, a boundary a, a privacy boundary it started surveilling on teenagers you know it's been looking at the posts of uh, teens you know 14 15 16 upwards probably even younger than that and it's been collating data from their posts and been selling them off to advertisers. Now, it has been reported that a 23-page confidential and internal document from Facebook had been leaked to The Australian, who subsequently, you know, had gone through this document and have made several reports based on its findings. The reason why this was picked up by The Australian, of all news sources, is that this research done by Facebook, this, this sort of mass data scalping has been more prominent in Australia uh, for reasons completely unbeknown to me. Oh, sorry, they have a far more detailed database of people in Australia and New Zealand. You know, let's, let's not forget New Zealand, the whales of Oceania. <laughs> uh, I'm so glad this isn't a massively popular podcast. People are upset with that one. And it is reported that the Facebook's database for young people in that region has been broken down by 1.9 million high school students with an average age of 16, 1.5 million third level students, roughly about 21 years old, and 3 million workers ranging from about 26 years old. Now, yes, of course, this does mean that Facebook is 
slightly more interested with adults around the age of 26 than it is with younger people. Or that could possibly just mean that not very many young people use Facebook, preferring to use other newer platforms like Instagram, Snapchat, and things like that. And obviously, you know, it does make sense that they're going to be selling off anyone's data. It might as well be people at the age of 26 and upwards. Now, when people have some form of disposable income, we've seen with a lot of cultural products that there is this sense of arrested development. You know, look at Guardians of the Galaxy. The reason why that got so popular, not just Guardians of the Galaxy, but all of the Marvel films, the reasons why that has sold so well is not only do you have the kids who want to watch it, you have the people in their mid-20s, early 30s, you know, who are parents, who are older siblings, who remember these characters in their first TV iterations from their comic books in the 90s, wanting to, and they want to take their kids or their siblings to go watch these movies. I mean, that's just one example. It's a terrible example, but it's one example. But of course, this does lead to the question of exactly how does Facebook sell user data to other companies? Because I think it's a, a fair assumption by most users of most websites, most social uh, media platforms, that these platforms make their money through the direct selling of adverts. So for example, if I was to run the Risk Topic podcast as a Facebook page, I could pay Facebook money to advertise on your wall I don't even still call it a wall. I don't know what they call it, but to advertise to you and your friends, so on and so forth. That's not exactly a hundred percent true. They do do that, but that forms a minority of their income. And let's not forget, social media platforms are not making money. I mean, okay, they're making money, but they're not making a profit. They're not turning a profit. Look at how much YouTube costs Google. Google loses money on YouTube at least according to its own official figures, Twitter has yet to turn a profit. This, of course, comes with added pressure from investors because when social platforms are launched at their initial public service, no, initial public offering, that's the one, IPO, there has been so much hype around these platforms that their initial cost is overinflated. So, of course, people you know really want the return in uh, investments, and so, yeah, there is pressure on social platforms like Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Pinterest. Okay, that one was a joke. No one uses Pinterest. There's like free people who pretend that they're artists who use Pinterest. But yeah, these platforms have to find new and interesting ways of making money. And the one thing they do have is an awful load of user data. Every time you use their platform, you are giving them your data. But it's not just the data you use on the platform. And because Facebook, Twitter, social media platforms are private entities, we don't know exactly how they go about collecting such data. They don't release that to the public. I mean, have you ever had it where you've been searching something on, on Amazon or, you know, you've just just bought something on Amazon and you go to Facebook and all of a sudden there's a, an advert it's happened to me very recently. I've been looking at going to Amsterdam next month. It's my mate's birthday. So for sure, I'm going to go down there. It's going to be great. It's going to be messy. But I'm like, okay, I'm skin. I need a way to get to Amazon. What do I do? I'll go, ah, oh, kayak.com. I remembered an advert for them. So went on kayak.com to have a look and I found me what I wanted to look for. But I didn't book through kayak. I went to booking.com or whatever. But now I'm on Facebook. All I'm getting is bloody adverts for kayak, Euroline trips to Amsterdam, 
flights to Amsterdam. And I think the only thing I've put on my on my Facebook about Amsterdam is a private message to my friend going, hey, bruv, yeah, Amsterdam is going to be a sick one, mate. Yes, that is exactly how I talk to him. But somehow Facebook has scalped my internet usage and it has found that I am, an, as an individual, am very interested in going to Amsterdam and it has somehow found these adverts and presented them to me. Now, again, we don't exactly know how the money is exchanged in these circumstances. Is there a bidding system? Does someone like kayak.com have to bid alongside other people like Expedia or whatever for users who are interested in traveling in Europe? If they won the bid with, with Facebook and they've given Facebook the most amount of money, is it then their adverts that get promoted based off of my user data? We do not know. Now, this again is and is not a problem. It's not a problem because I, as a 27-year-old bloke, am being offered products and services that I am indeed very interested in. It's not as if I'm getting offers and, and services or links to dodgy websites sent to me based on, you know, those moments on Wikipedia when you start clicking on links and you find yourself in some very bizarre Wikipedia pages. You you start off reading stuff about Star Trek and somehow you're reading up about self-mutilation in Cambodia circa 1930 and you're like, how, how did I even get here, bruv? That's when, that's when you know that you've had way too much internet for tonight. Never Wikipedia past 12 o'clock, okay? It's like a, it's like a freaking gremlin. It just morphs into some strange beast. And yeah, when it comes back to social media platforms, I am the one who said that I agree to the terms of service. Not that anyone reads the terms of service, of course, and not that anyone who feels the pressure to use these platforms, whether they are for personal networking or even professional networking, can afford to not use these platforms. But this is where this particular issue has uh, really got under the skin of, well, at least some journalists, I guess we could say, in that they did the same thing for teens, 14, 15, 16, 17 year olds. But what they did do, or what Facebook did rather, was it focused on the emotional language that these these teens used. It monitored the posts of teens and looked for words and phrases that allowed Facebook to deduce whether these these individual users, you know, were feeling insecure, worthless, or in need of a confidence boost. Actual quotes from the articles that I'm reading. Such posts could involve things like looking good and body confidence, working out and losing weight, so on and so forth. Now, the issue there is where Facebook highlights these users and promotes particular branded products which could be seen to elevate their mood. No, I'm not talking about selling drugs to kids, but you know, hey, you're feeling down, you had a bit of a bad time, drink a Coke or other non-branded cola products. Feeling blue on a Monday, here's an advert of shiny happy people all getting along together with this new app and it only costs $2.99 to download. Now, there is a way in which this could be not a problem if such data was being used to advertise services offered by mental health charities, by suicide prevention charities, substance abuse charities, stuff like that. Things that were, you know, designed to get people's lives back on track. But on the other side, you tend to find that a lot of religious institutions also claim to be able to put people's lives back on track. So at which point do you highlight 
a suicide prevention post by mind or do you promote the 12 steps program something that has very close religious connotations it's questions like these that we do not know the answers of because facebook keeps that all locked behind corporate privacy this of course comes off the back in 2014 where facebook published a study detailing a massive psychological experiment it conducted on 700,000 users that is more than pretty much any university could do and it checked to see how manipulations of users newsfeed altered their emotional state and also this year facebook's data science team examined people going through breakups on facebook identifying that it took a really small period of time between them updating their relationship status to single and producing posts like healing drowning sorrows and suffering as well as a 40 percent increase in accepting invitations from friends and for what this means for marketers is that people who have recently gone through breakups people who are in this devastated psychological frame of mind are more willing to invest in new experiences and again according to this research these newly single people make up 25 percent of the most travel related purchases a month after a breakup how many other people who are upset who are feeling lonely who are feeling isolated who are feeling ashamed of their body go on to click on these adverts and and see what these products they have on offer are and just how can facebook just slightly tweak things to make it just just that little bit more easier for people to click on advertisers products now the biggest problem with this is the ethics what you as an individual what you as a researcher what you as a representative of an organizational body what you as just simply a good member of society should do with the power that you have obtained and informed consent is one of the biggest biggest issues this ability to let your participants know that they are indeed participating in a study and to let them know that they are free to leave at any time is kind of one of the the keystones of post-nazi research and it was actually one of the questions that i pitched at the presenter of the project that i was listening into yesterday i said to her i was like well, you know are you gonna look at people's social media posts in order to see whether they are concerned about privacy and you know she looked at me dead in the eyes and went i did consider that and i considered it to be unethical and i said i went oh i didn't even think of ethics you know which is why i need to redo my ethics form because i'm terrible at it but even me being terrible at it can see that what facebook is doing is pretty damn unethical but i guess this is one of the reasons why people consider university-led research to be just that little bit more trustworthy than corporate-led research because at least with academic research you can find those research papers most of the time if you email the lead researcher and say can i have a look at this you'll receive a copy it won't be the official copy but it will be a copy but with corporate entities they have industry secrets that they want to protect it's, it's like you know coca-cola or pepsi protecting their secret formula facebook's secret formula isn't a delicious drink or a delicious cereal it is exactly how do they monetize user data and how such data could be manipulated to please marketers and while this story while the story of data privacy isn't exciting you know it's 
it's not as exciting to see on the news, but it is damn important. As we move into a digital age, people are offering up more and more of themselves to develop a digital identity. And there seems to be a reliance on the good nature intentions of multinational corporations. We look at Google and Amazon and Facebook and Twitter and and all of these social media platforms and think, yeah, these guys have got our backs. But then we look at the multinational banks. I mean, look at how Russell Brand hates the bankers. And for the past 10 or so years, it's been, grr, those evil bankers, you know, they've they've harmed Western civilization, grr. But Google, yeah, no, they're, they're our friends. They, they gave us YouTube and they gave us Android. Amazon gave us products and Facebook gave us the ability to message our friends and they're really really good people and they won't do nothing bad uh no sadly you're wrong on that one guys but hey what do i know the one thing i do know is that i have uh i have indeed run out of coffee um and i think i've beaten this topic like a dead horse i don't know how many times i said marketing data but it seems that this issue is something that's bubbling under the surface and we're waiting for that big risk catastrophe to promote this into into the limelight we've seen celebrities get their nude pictures leaked that sort of got some interest uh, but not too much uh, we're now seeing that the kids are being targeted uh, for data scalping and and selling on to corporate entities we know from experience that can be a moment for change look at the phone hacking scandal um i don't know if this will be the, the big issue maybe it will but either way you can hear the music so you know it's time for a little break and i'll see you all in the second segment and we're back got myself a cup of Audi own brand coffee, you know, only the best on this podcast. And from one issue of the digital youth to an issue of the physical youth, I guess you could say it's slightly weird that we're having to get to a point in society where we have to draw a delineation between the virtual and the real. But there have been renewed calls uh, for UK schools to install metal detectors to help stop knife crime. Now, several years ago, I had the luxury, I guess you could say, of working at an inner city London school that had previously had quite a uh, big issue in regards to knife crime. If any of you can remember the Jack Petchy Award uh, that was held at, or handed out, I should say, across uh, many schools in the UK, it was based on the tragic story of a young lad named Jack Petchy who got stabbed and died outside of the school gates and this was the school that I happened to work. Now this school did have quite a big discipline problem but they were taking measures to to address it and at least in regards to uh, knife crime, gang violence I guess you could say, they implemented a no hoodie policy. It was it was coats or, uh, or go home at the school gate. You wasn't even allowed in and it seemed to have addressed some of the issues that the school was having in the early 2000s but the police have called for these uh, knife arches to to be brought in to london schools as they believe it will prevent knife crime these are very reminiscent of the metal detectors that you see at 
airports and stuff like that. And the whole idea is to get children to go through, I say children, school children, secondary school children, young adults, I think is the preferred nomenclature, to go through these arches in order to try and pick out those who may have metal bladed instruments. The reason for this is that this year, the year of 2017, there has been a total of 17 stabbing related deaths of uh, people under the age of 25 and attacks with bladed weapons have increased in the capital by 24% and are also rising nationally. Now this is just a completely casual observation but it actually doesn't strike me as unique or indeed surprising that there has been an increase in uh, weapon violence or even just an increase in, in violence in general year on year. Let's not forget that as a society, violence has been on the decline over the hundreds of years. Young people are stabbing and killing each other at a much lower rate. So much so that in a city of what? 8 million? Hang on, let's double check this. Yeah, there we go. London is a city with a population of 8.6 million. It's projected to reach 10 million by 2025. That we seem to have only 17 deaths of young people under the age of 25. And I guess the big question there is, how many deaths does it take for something to be considered a problem? Some people would argue one death. Some people would argue that it'd have to be a actually statistically significant number of people. But as I was saying, this increase in uh, knife-related attacks, knife-related deaths, and just general violence, it doesn't strike me as surprising considering that over the past, what, two years? Violence, social fragmentation, fear, anger, they have all been very, very salient issues within the media. Again, I'm not saying that the media does go on to directly influence people's behavior. But if you're dreading your own security, you know, whether you're believing that those people who, who vote UKIP, so roughly about half of the voting public are inherently racist, whether you believe that Muslims who make up several million of the UK population are inherently dangerous to Western civilization, whether you believe those in the cities, believe those outside the cities are just thick and stupid, if you believe that the police are going to kill you because of your ethnic background, whether you believe that men are seemingly misogynistic and hate women, or you believe that feminists are inherently hateful towards men. There has been an awful load of social division sown through the media. So it doesn't actually surprise me that there are a subsect of young people who are sitting there and they are feeling threatened and they are dreading their existence and they believe that picking up a weapon is one way in which to defend themselves. You know, if they're dreading attacks from almost anyone in society, having something to defend yourself, especially if you believe that they are going to have a weapon to be aggressive towards you, does kind of make a bit of sense. I'm not saying people should do it. Heck no. I'm just saying I could understand the logic I could understand the decision-making of why someone would want to pick up a weapon. Now, of course, the big question is where does it go from a utilisation in defence to a utilisation of offence? What validates or self-validates someone's use of a weapon? And I think it's these things that the Metropolitan Police and National Police are trying to address. It almost seems now that the stigma of having a weapon 
that you're some sort of loser in life if you if you hold a weapon has been replaced and we see so much warring rhetoric not just across established media but across social media as well people are itching for a fight whether you're you know fighting for the pride of of the uk and voting brexit or you're fighting against fascists and things like that and whatever <laughs> it, it just gets a bit silly after a while but as it is the Metropolitan Police are trying to address this issue. They are trying to make the streets safer for folk to go out and enjoy their night out, whether it is in, you know, Croydon, Bromley, Barnet, East Ham, Westfield, doesn't matter where they try and address these things. But one thing that the police are suffering from is a lack of confidence in policing. Communities do not wish to come forward. So this idea of a community style of policing has sadly crumbled over the past 10 years as such police have started to instigate more stop and search procedures and suggesting as we've just seen knife arches outside schools dcs uh, michael gallagher one of the met's leaders on its anti-knife initiative has sort of said that the pause in stop and search was over and also suggesting that as we move into the summer and the days get longer the temperatures rise and long term as the population grows in london this could become quite a severe social issue but he's also basing his opinions quite a bit on other sets of data and he says you know across south london especially in croydon knife crime does seem to be linked to the times that schools open and close he says that in those areas there is a spike in in stabbings at around three o'clock and especially at transport hubs where students from multiple different schools exchange transport services however in other areas knife crime does seem to be linked to the opening and closing of various nightclubs and all of this has validated the use of stop and search procedures as an attempt to carry out what the met is calling murder suppression but of course there are massive fears that in trying to conduct these murder suppression tactics by area you may inadvertently be operating some sort of form of institutional racism especially if you're operating in an area that is predominantly afro-caribbean predominantly british asian etc etc and of course this leads to the big question of but i am reminded of that video that was going around social media a couple of weeks back of uh, a young dad you know i think he was a dad anyway he was a man in his late 20s early 30s uh, a relative of his had gone to a party. It was a, a 16-year-old kid's party. And she was, you know, of that age. And she ended up calling him and was like, there are youths here with knives. And he went down to the party because obviously, you know, his family members there. And he took the bladed instruments from these youths. And he, he recorded himself on Facebook saying, these are the, the knives that I, I've taken from these youths at this party. This is a kid's party. And he brought out, you know, long bladed hunted knives pulled a machete out and, and stuff like that they were sort of saying this is the reality of knife culture in the uk kids are going to kids parties bladed up and then he made sure to address the police and sort of said i'm am, i am going to dispose of these weapons and you know I, I genuinely hope he he did however returning to the issue of knife arches at the school gates will this have an actual impact on knife violence Probably not. 
if someone really wants to stab someone outside the school gates, they're just going to hide the knives before they go into school. Leave early. I mean, what teacher is actually going to try and physically stop a kid from, from leaving the school? None. There is no way a teacher could physically handle a student nowadays and especially if it's a female teacher like some of those lads could knock a woman out if they wanted probably would heck some of those girls would knock a adult out wouldn't surprise me and they just collect the weapons and use them after school or as it said there wait at transport hubs but it would also be a show of force it would be a show that the police are cracking down on this sort of violence yet we've also started seeing that a lot of these disputes are taking place online and using social media using video specifically to taunt and to tease others into a state of anger it very much reminds me of the documentary knuckle if, if you'd seen it that was where there was uh, irish gypsy families and they would record themselves on vhs tapes and post them to one another and you know challenge each other to a fight be sitting there going no you're not a man i'll knock you out i knocked your brother out and it'd be a back and forth until the day of the fight. What we're seeing now is something very similar, although some gangs are taken to interpretive dance, but they are dissing one another using social media. The big difference being that with the Irish gypsies, it finished at the fight. There were rules. Once someone went down and it was over, it was over, no biting, nothing like that. Yet what we're seeing in London is it is the death that ends any sort of animosity between groups and some of these groups are only separated by a couple of postcodes so there have been calls for social media sites to start paying attention to this sort of stuff and it goes back to the previous segment of when is it okay to allow privacy to be taken monitoring of young people's social media accounts in order to advertise products at them is bad but yet relatively benign however monitoring of young people's social media accounts to see whether they're going to go and commit violence could be seen as a social good despite the fact that it's both a breach of privacy and it's a, a personal belief of mine that youth violence is not being addressed in the correct way there are some young men who are just aggressive not inherently violent just aggressive and that aggression can be channeled towards violence and it can be channeled towards self-destructive behavior depending on the person's background depending on their upbringing it is the marriage between the nature and nurture debate your nature could be that of aggression but your nurture is what leads you to violence and i genuinely hope that anthony joshua's recent boxing win could be used to influence more social programs aimed at channeling that aggression into a sense of discipline especially through boxing but I know the idea of getting boxing implemented in schools, which would be great. Boxing, kickboxing, jiu-jitsu, mixed martial arts, whatever one you want to do, get that implemented in schools to allow these aggressive people a chance to channel their aggression into something that, if anything, is just cathartic. I'm not saying have them there battering each other, but give them the chance to, to just wail on a heavy bag every now and again. For some people, sitting down for six to eight hours and learning just isn't their bag. Not to mention preschool dietary issues. I've seen kids just knocking back energy drinks before they went into class. And maybe, yeah, if they had a boxing lesson, that would give them the chance to just get rid of some of that extra energy, tucker them out so they can sit and they can focus. And the other day I looked at funny enough this is this is how sad i am i downloaded the uh united states's annual 
injury report, accidental injury report. And uh, I looked at the incidence of, of injuries between boxing and bowling for people under the age of five admitted. Uh, but there was about 2,000 bowling-related injuries for, for kids under the age of five. But there was only 20 for boxing in 2015. But again, until we see attempts to address masculine culture rather than condemn it, we're not going to address these these flares in knife violence. But again, that being said, there is a very, very interesting correlation regarding the sale of computer games and violence. It seems to be that as computer games such as Grand Theft Auto, as Call of Duty, stuff like that increases, the violence decreases. It's almost as if young people have an opportunity to engage in catharsis with these supposedly violent video games. Not only that, they can engage in teamwork, they can have fun playing stuff like Call of Duty, and it erodes the need for that kinship that they find out on the street in gangs. But anyway, at the end of the day, when a risk issue involves young people, involves children more so than anything, that is when we as a society do take note. It seems to be that youth is one of those factors that lead to amplification. The media likes the story of youth, whether it is gang violence, whether it is privacy issues, as we've seen previously with the phone hacking scandal. It is when youth is affected that leads to calls for change. And maybe just maybe there should be a change in what we deem important, not saying that, you know, kids aren't important, but if we adults began discourse surrounding these issues before it got down to the children, maybe we could address some of these issues a little bit sooner rather than just slightly too late. And maybe we could also address these issues through social engagement rather than policy change and more regulation and more of the government telling people what to do. And maybe we could find a sense of social cohesion rather than looking at fragmentation of groups upon just really coarse lines of gender, race, education, and, and things like that. Anyway, you can hear the music, so you know that is the end of the Risk Topic Podcast, episode five. I hope you have enjoyed it. Feel free to follow this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud and YouTube. Chuck us a like, chuck us a retweet, chuck us a share, all of that good stuff. This has been the Risk Topic Podcast. I have been Martin Rook. See you all next week. Yeah.